1: Welcome, everybody. Today's show is about Black Friday. And to help me discuss this topic is Professor Pete Vader. Pete is the Francis and Pei Wan Cha Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the founder of two predictive analytics startups, Zodiac, which was acquired by Nike, and Theta Equity Partners. He's also an established author and just an all around fantastic person. Pete, welcome to the show.
0: Allison, it's always great talking to you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Now, I have heard through the back channels that you actually have a book coming out on Tuesday. Is that right?
0: Yes, indeed. October 30th is the birthday for the Customer Centricity Playbook, kind of the the, the next stage in, in helping companies deal with these Emerging concepts and strategies, and of course, be glad to talk more about it.
1: Fantastic! I'm sure we can weave that into our Black Friday topic in the show, especially as we talk about the fundamentals of CLV. But before we dive into that, let's let's just talk a little bit about your background and how you got into this topic of customer lifetime value and predictive analytics.
0: So it's you know it's interesting that uh, I came into customer lifetime value almost through the back door. I was um, Spending a lot of time in the mid to late '90s doing new product forecasting, a very fundamental topic, but in the academic circles, a lot of my colleagues were yawning about it. They said, "Come on, that's a solved problem. Come on, really?" Uh, and so, uh, so I did a slight pivot along with my partner in crime, Bruce Hardy, at the London Business School, to say instead of projecting at the product level, let's project at the customer level. Uh, that was a little bit it uh, was a lot more novel the idea of clv was was just emerging the the data structures that would enable these kinds of predictions were, were just coming online so it was a way to take uh, basically it was a it was a classic pivot just to take uh, the what we were doing was put a different spin on it uh, and all of a sudden it was a whole new world uh, the, uh, the 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 patterns were remarkable the use cases were really interesting and it started to show us that what companies are doing with and saying about their customers is often very much out of line with what the the data and the models tell us. So it actually, instead of just building a better mousetrap in terms of a slightly better new product forecasting model, it was actually much more fundamental. It was, wait a minute, (laughs) the world of marketing needs to change. And we've been on that change mission for about 15, 20 years now. (laughs)
1: <laughs> now that's a long time to make a discovery and then keep beating the CLV drum. What do you think has changed recently that is helping to get more momentum around this concept?
0: Uh, companies are listening. That's that's the big change. That for, for most of the this past 15-20 years I've been going to companies and and saying, "Look, You're you're wrong about some of the patterns or to be a little bit more positive. Look, I have all these great models. I have all these great insights and tools that will help you understand your customers better, manage relationships in a more profitable manner. I would put out all the the code for these CLV models and videos and technical notes and, and case studies and so on. Please go use this stuff. But for most of that time, the companies wouldn't listen. Because they themselves were very product-centric. They they really just weren't thinking about developing customer relationships at the kind of granular level that I'm suggesting. They'd make a lot of noise about it, but but it would, in the end, it would just be the, the customer. So, so part of it was uh, a recognition that just focusing on the product or generically on the customer isn't going to get you real far. But part of it is the improved data that that companies now have, the improved computational capabilities that they're now quite comfortable with, and just a new generation of managers, folks who just weren't necessarily born into the old way of thinking, uh, a lot of these digitally native companies it really is a new generation of executive, uh, and so I think uh, there's a lot of different forces coming together where companies are not only open to to understanding some of these methods, insights, and practices but are are, uh, actively uh, pursuing them. You know, now the phone's ringing off the hook. Tell us more. Uh, And and it's just, it's a really great time.
1: That's fantastic. Now, we we talk a lot about CLV on this show and we talk a lot about some of the fundamentals. But, you know, for folks that may be listening for the first time, would you mind just recapping some of the basics that go into the way we think about customer lifetime value and customer centricity as opposed to the way somebody might have gotten it before in an old MBA program.
0: Sure thing. So let's start with the, the most basic of basics that, that no one will find surprising and no one should argue with, which is that uh, customer lifetime value represents the projected future profitability uh, of, of of everything having to do with, with each individual customer. So uh, that is literally the definition of it, customer lifetime value. The problem is that uh, a lot of people use those words very, very loosely, uh, and they kind of forget the literal meaning of those three words, uh, especially the value part, and they'll either uh, base it on historic profitability, uh, or they'll do it over a limited range into the future, or they'll do it for a limited range of activities that the customer's involved with, or they'll be kind of sloppy about um, uh, how they take uh, costs into account, So it turns out that most of the CLVs that companies are talking about or or putting out there or just using for their own decision making really don't reflect customer lifetime value. I'm not saying that what they're coming up with is wrong. Uh, Again, if you're talking about what the customer profitability is over the next two years, that could be very valuable. I'm, I'm nothing against that. That might be more valuable than CLV. But call it C2V instead. (laughs) Uh, uh, Let's just be real clear about what we're measuring and what we're claiming, because we are going to be held accountable by this stuff. Right now, companies are just putting these things out there, assuming that no one's ever actually going to call them on it. But I'm trying to raise the bar. I'm trying to get uh, people from across the organization and external stakeholders as well to start uh, looking back at those numbers, let's say two years from now, and saying, well, were you right or not? So so really trying to come up with much more rigorous standards about how these things are defined and measured, uh, and starting to augment them in other ways. So as just one example, and there's many others that we can talk about, what about the social interactions that people have with each other? So it could be that, that my profitability impacts yours and vice versa. So when I talk about the future value of, of all interactions with one particular customer, we should also take into account where they're located in the social graph and the, and the uh, contribution that they might make to making other customers more valuable and, and so on. That's a really hard problem. But if we're going to talk about customer lifetime value the right way and to do it comprehensively, uh, we, we should be accounting for that as well.
1: I can see where the data crunching becomes an incredibly uh, important part of that scenario.
0: Yes, and that's the, one of the issues is uh, very often people will take me up on my offer when I talk about having videos and case studies and spreadsheets and technical notes and they say, okay, well, give me the starter kit. Well, the problem is if you're going to be doing this stuff in practice and you're going to be doing this stuff uh, at full commercial scale and you're going to be doing it in a way that you're willing to be held accountable, it's actually pretty hard. And the basic back-of-the-envelope version that people might do in their marketing one-on-one class is just plain wrong. The numbers that you come up with, the scope of behaviors that you account for, it's just inadequate. And so I don't even have, I never teach that kind of baby intro to lifetime value thing because I I just don't want to be spreading bad practices. It's just not good to put out that baby version and say, ah, but that one's not right. Let me give you this one instead. So this could be a problem on my part that maybe I'd be better off walking before I can run but lifetime value is a sprint and you just need to be in shape before you even begin that that kind of activity.
1: You know, I think there's a white paper that's really easy to access and I'll I'll, uh, include it in the show notes. But if you do a Google search for pete fader and customer lifetime value this very brief document comes up that says what's wrong with clv and it goes through each piece of why the calculation is not built correctly and other things that you have to think through but like you said it's it's fairly complex uh, and it really has to reflect the business that you're in in order to correctly account for what you will be held accountable for at the end of the day
0: That's another fantastic point, Allison. And too often in the textbook lifetime value calculation, it assumes that it is some kind of contractual relationship. That is, it focuses on calculating and using the retention rate, which is vitally important if you are in some kind of subscription or other contractual setting. But most business isn't. Most business doesn't have a formal retention rate. For most companies, they don't really know how many customers they have because there is no formal account like that that gets closed and the customer goes away. The best you can do is just to look at the transactions that they've had with you over the past year or two and say, you know, they used to do a lot. They haven't been around for a while. They're probably gone now. So in that kind of non-contractual setting, it is much more complex and you cannot approximate it as a contractual one. You cannot come up with a retention rate in a setting when it's impossible to count your customers. So it's just another one of these examples where, yeah, it raises the entry barrier to do this stuff, but it ensures that if you're going to do it, you're going to do it right.
1: Right. Right. Well, And, and I, I feel that we have spent so much time looking at the digital streams that come in and I love the combination of looking at that non-contractual setting and getting some of those early digital signals in. We sometimes see that there's a nice match between valuable customers and how many signals they're giving you. Like they, they're they starting out, they want to interact with you, they're reading your emails, they're clicking through. Maybe they're not buying right away, but they're giving those signals like almost a bid for attention that that they are interested when you combine that with their actual clv value it helps you see these are people who are starting to become good customers or conversely these are people that are starting to maybe fall off the good customer bandwagon and so you can take appropriate marketing activities so that the combination of digital and customer lifetime value is just i think almost unbeatable it's a fantastic tool
0: so true, so true, and and that's really what, what led to the the revelations that, that I mentioned at the outset. Uh, the, the idea that that not all customers are created equal, and there are observable aspects, whether it's behaviors, sometimes it's demographics, but usually not. Uh, but 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 are things that they do, or just things about the customer um, that can be indicative of what they'll be worth uh, over the long run. So we really can start to talk about lifetime value even before we've seen you live your whole life. And that's what gives us pivot towards customer centricity. The fact that we can anticipate, maybe not right all the time, but we can anticipate which customers are likely to be the most valuable ones. And so if we have a limited number of touches that we can give out, if the if we're going to kind of queue up our customers, uh, have some kind of priority for customer service for some other bonuses that we're giving out, that we should be willing to kind of go out on a limb and say, you know what? I think these customers over here are going to be the good ones more than those over there. And we should now have the the, the courage, the ability to pick and choose like that. And that's what drives us in this direction of customer centricity. It all starts with CLV, but it really requires us to be able to get those early signals and the ability to take action on them.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, that is a fantastic cue up to Black Friday. So tell us a little bit about... Why you think Black Friday is a bad way for retail to go about getting new business? So let's
0: start with the kind of the the snarkiest, most sarcastic, cynical, skeptical way to look at it, and then we can kind of work backwards to kind of put it all in a proper perspective. Black Friday is the day when you identify your worst, worst, worst customers and treat them like royalty. Okay, all you terrible customers, all you customers who are very price sensitive and you rarely buy with us except when we have stuff on sale and you're kind of difficult to manage, um, we are going to line all of you up and we're going to have special hours. We're going to pay our employees double just to let you destroy our store and buy stuff at deep, deep discounts, knowing full well that you won't be back again until this time next year. Does that sound like a recipe for success or what? Uh, Now, again, I'm overstating a little bit, but that's the the spirit of it is what Black Friday is all about, is, is going against everything that we were just saying, that not all customers are created equal, so let's take the worst ones and do far more for them and with them than we should.
1: So why do you think companies do this?
0: Couple of reasons number one uh, uh there's still a lot of companies out there that don't have the visibility into the individual customers and they don't believe what i'm saying and they say hear all that ka going on we're selling a lot of stuff let's not worry about tomorrow let's just celebrate today so there's a, a lot of that just getting kind of caught up in the moment um, there's also the naive belief that if we can be their best friend then all of a sudden they will turn from ugly ducklings into beautiful swans. And that once we have information about them and we have this touch point with them that we can start cross selling and upselling and they're going to love us and they're going to buy from us more often and at full price. Yeah, right. And then the third part is it's just competition. We know that our competitors are doing it and so we better do it too because we don't want to get caught flat footed. So there's just a lot of reasons that in and of themselves are actually kind of understandable But when you do step back and look at the big picture, which is the future projected value of customers and value of the customer base as a whole, that it's not really a good thing to do.
1: Yeah, I can can see that. And I can also see why the retailers get caught up in that short-term gain. But one of the things I want to pick out from your three reasons that I think is a common assumption is that reason number two, that you can take an ugly duckling and turn them into a swan. Why do you think so many retailers believe that if they just aggregate enough customers, they can grow them into higher value customers? And how have you figured out that it isn't actually the case?
0: Well, again, this this goes back to the revelation. But until that time, until the early 2000s, we really believed in marketing management, or, or worse yet, customer relationship management, that we can manage the customer relationship, that it, it's kind of under our control, and that we have these godlike powers, and if we put the just right offer in front of the customer at the right time, then, then magical things will happen. And it turns out that behavior is much more random Unpredictable, uh, that no matter how much data we collect on particular individuals, their decision to do stuff with us or their decision to kind of end the relationship is largely out of our control. And so a lot of this whole new era of looking at things is to recognize that there there really is only so much that we can do, and that we do need to be opportunistic and and when the when an opportunity arises, and here's, hey, there's a chance here a customer is seeking a way to deepen the relationship. We need to kind of pounce on it. But most customers aren't seeking that very often at all. Uh, and just because they're checking out stuff on the website doesn't mean that they're they're looking for us to kind of call them up and offer them a lot of stuff. So the traditional ways of, quote unquote, managing customer relationships Cross-selling and upselling, like hey, you know, people who buy this also buy that, <laughs> or hey, don't you want this nicer version? Um, they're not nearly as effective as we thought. And very often, when we look at them not through the lens of how much stuff we're able to push out the door through such a campaign, but in terms of future value enhanced or created, they're they're actually much more limited. And the ROI on those efforts aren't as, as great as we'd like to believe. So we really have to get much smarter about moving away from these kind of one-size-fits-all practices of cross-selling and upselling and think about more nuanced uh, ways to go. And of course, it's something that I make a great big deal about uh, in my new book, that we we need to think about some of the the newer tools, some of which aren't exactly brand new, things like loyalty programs or some of the, the really newer stuff like like customer experience activities or strategic account management or premium services. Uh, there are things that we can target more effectively to help us grow value or defend value with the right kinds of customers rather than the, the, the one-size-fits-all approaches that companies have traditionally followed.
1: So based on maybe some things that you outlined in the playbook, can you and, – and I don't know if you actually have examples here, but are there ways that you'd like to see – Black Friday retailers operate or are there actual examples of Black Friday retailers who are doing things in a more customer centricity playbook way that are being more intelligent about it? So how should it go at this time of year?
0: Sure. So so this this main framework that I just alluded to is we got to ask ourselves, which kinds of customers are we, are we focused on and what is it that we want to do with them? So are we aiming at the high end or the low end of our customer pyramid? And are we trying to play offense to create more value or are we trying to play defense just to kind of, you know, hold on to the customers? I would say that the kinds of Black Friday activities that, that we uh, usually associate with the holiday and that I was just saying the snarky things about should be put in the low-value play defense bucket. So there are some things that we need to do just to kind of stay competitive and to hold on to that kind of not great relationship with those customers. Uh, So using Black Friday in some kind of defensive way, uh, which means, yes, you got to maybe offer some discounts and maybe you got to offer some merchandising and messaging and, and so on, but not to the full extent that most companies are doing it. And instead, if you're going to be really putting yourself out there, you should be focusing those activities much more on the on the high-end customers. So, for instance, instead of uh, throwing open the doors at midnight on, on Thursday night, right, for everyone ate all their turkey, and kind of encouraging all these not great customers who are going to uh, come on in, um, you should be uh, devoting those extra hours and those extra activities to the high-end customers. So, why not have Uh, You know, this special uh, VIP shopping hours um, when uh, you're open late or you're open early only for customers who have shown or are projected to have the right kinds of behaviors. So why not uh, save some of the Black Friday activity as rewards um, and and using it as a way to kind of treat people really well instead of treating them like cattle. Or as a, a wonderful, wonderful example, and I don't even think it was even intended this way, but it just came out that way. Uh, it's an example that I'm sure that many of your listeners are already familiar with, the whole opt-outside uh, campaign that REI came up with a couple of years ago. The whole idea of, you know what, let's avoid that mad rush, um, and and let's just not even think about having all those crazy discounts, and instead... Let's just talk about family and leisure and exercise and and let's kind of play to the core of what REI is all about. And instead of inviting in all those customers who don't even necessarily subscribe to those things or don't buy very often with us, let's just find ways to kind of make the day special for you and for our employees as well. I love that campaign and I like the way that they've doubled down on it over the years. And I find it interesting how other companies have tried to mimic it in different ways, but all too often it ends up being a, we're like REI, but we're going to have this tremendous sale, so all of you should line up for it. <laughs> it's this, this inherent contradiction. So so indeed, th- there are ways to make a Black Friday, or let's call them you know, early holiday shopping activities, fit within this framework, but it's important to recognize that it needs to be different kinds of activities if we're talking about the high-end versus the low-end customers and whether we're talking about offense versus defense. I think that brings a lot more discipline to the way that we uh, that we look at what we're doing and then uh, how we might allocate our, our scarce resources for it.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Uh, yeah. It, in many ways, Black Friday is it's a really dramatic example, but I think the, the same perspectives, they apply year-round. It's just that Black Friday is just a time when it really kind of goes against the grain of, of so many companies uh, allocating those scarce resources so ineffectively. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that you should get rid of those sales. You need to do some of that. But you don't necessarily need to overdo it and to... Let all of that craziness get in the way of actually creating meaningful value for the high-value customers.
1: Let's talk about online for a second, because I think in Black Friday, we oftentimes think about the physical retail store, and yet many of these principles should apply online as well as offline, correct?
0: Of course. We had this icky phrase. People still talk about it, but I hope that they'll stop. Maybe that will, Maybe this year it'll start to wane. The idea of Cyber Monday or, or whatever, that you know after the holidays end and you're back at work or you spend all your time online uh, shopping there. So first of all, we should eliminate both phrases because neither one is, is really valid. It's not even like Black Friday is the biggest shopping day of the year. Usually it, it tends to come actually closer to Christmas. So let's just get rid of the stereotypes. It's bad that I even brought it up. (laughs) Um, But there should be just lots of both integration of online and offline. I'm certainly not the first to be saying that. Um, All retailers should be omni-channel. But to be able to use the different kinds of platforms to be able to differentiate among customers and the different kinds of, of customer experiences. You know, there's a lot of retailers, including Mighty Amazon, that hesitate to do different things online versus offline. You're going to some of these Amazon stores, and even though it it is a a different experience, uh, the the prices are the same. And the merchandise, it will be a subset of of what you see online. But instead, uh, retailers should be offering uh, omni-channel, that they should be available in a seamless way across uh, online and offline, but they should, at the same time, celebrate some of the differences and have some merchandise that's available to one or the other. Or uh, potential interactions that might be different uh, one versus the other, and again, that's going to be an opportunity to be growing value while with some while also playing defense with others
1: you know what's interesting about that is it almost sounds like you're suggesting that Amazon have something like a prime store that's um, a different type of store for its more valuable prime customers or maybe even a VIP prime store or some other additional level. Have you seen that in the real world where companies are starting to break out um, special stores or special experiences for those higher value customers?
0: Yeah, we are starting to see it. Not with Amazon necessarily, but with one of the things I love is with Nordstrom's. So they now have a series of stores that they're opening up. I think first one started out in L.A. where you can't even buy anything, where uh, you, you can try stuff on and you can kind of uh, meet with your fashion consultants and you can get, uh, I think they have like spa treatments and other uh, beauty activities. So it's going to be uh, less about just buying, buying, buying and sale, sell, sell. sell. And more about kind of the holistic, let's get to know each other better. That's clearly going to cater to their higher-end customers, the ones who just love Nordstrom and want to have a more uh, multifaceted relationship with them. So uh, so I think that's a really great example there. Uh, Of of course, we see other examples at the low end of of a lot of these stores, including Nordstrom, but but all the big department stores having their outlet stores. So there's the way of, here we go again, kind of playing defense at the lower end, but doing so in a way that can kind of sort out those customers from the higher end ones that you want to spend a little bit more time doing the, the the personal stuff with. So we're clearly starting to see some of that. I think it is that kind of differentiation, but at the same time, coordination that's going to help retailers fight against the Amazons. Amazon's as if there's multiple against Amazon
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, as effectively as possible.
1: It almost sounds like in in that description about the Nordstrom stores that the brand is trying to become a friend, uh, almost a, a human entity to the high value customer in creating that deepening uh, more personal experience and and you know as we as we've all experienced you can't be friends with everybody you can be acquaintances with everybody but you can't be deep friends with everyone because there's just not that kind of fit is that the same philosophy that stores that want to attract high value customers are moving to They're they're almost trying to attract a tribe and become an entity
0: well, we certainly see great examples of exactly that happening with all of these direct-to-consumer, digitally-native startups. So starting with Warby Parker and right on down the line with the dozens that have followed suit is they're kind of beginning not just with a product, but with a promise. And there's usually there's either some kind of a social angle to it or they're meeting some kind of particular need that just the traditional players in their sectors uh, haven't been able to meet. So they're really setting themselves apart by saying, if you share this vision, then you know you want to kind of go deep with us. And so, yeah, we're starting to see a lot of that. And then ironically, then they start spreading themselves out. So uh, let's go back to Warby Parker. So they start with just this very uh, unusual premise that set them apart from other Glasses uh, provider. So it was the idea that buy one pair and they give one to, to charity. But also the, the the really interesting ways that you can order a bunch of them and we'll send you those frames and you can try them on and then send them back. Things that are quite commonplace now, but they really uh, kind of created the mold for it. Uh, but then they start opening stores and they they start becoming more broadly appealing to uh, other customers who didn't necessarily know about or, or resonate with that original appeal. So it is important at some point, as you said, to let everyone be your acquaintance, but to be selective about who your friends are and not to expect that everybody's going to want to be part of that club.
1: And when you do have that core group that's part of the club, then you can build on it, just as you said, with Warby Parker stretching out and saying, "Okay, now we're going to have a slightly bigger club, but still a very selective um, certain persona that they're after.
0: That's right. And it takes us back to Black Friday. And so there's a real opportunity to say that for you members of the club, we're going to do something very special for you, that here's going to be a way to avoid the rush. And and we're going to uh, come up with sales or we're going to come up with other kinds of uh, relationship enhancing activities that are a way for us to celebrate you. So I think it's, it's a really great way to kind of zig when all of these big box stores are, are zagging uh, and to show that we really can do something special there um, when you're tired of kind of waiting online and, and being mistreated by, by all these other vendors.
1: Well, let's say that I'm convinced and I am a retailer and I have decided that I want to do something new with my store for Black Friday. We've talked about a couple examples, but could you give us a bit of a bulleted or a tactical list of what to do for second, third in order to help my company pivot, my company being, you know, any generic retailer?
0: Well, it goes back to the beginning of the conversation. It goes back to customer lifetime value. The firms really need to double down on their efforts to tag and track their customers and recognize their value and measure as they interact with them, how much are they enhancing, if at all, uh, the value of that customer. So it starts with that, that none of this, none of my my Black Friday snark um, would make sense. None of it would be possible unless we're able to measure the value of customers. And as we started doing it, through my first startup, Zodiac, we'd start to see all the incredible lack of value lining up around the store at midnight on Thursday night and saying, wait a minute, what are we doing? So it's important to really, really, really do that um, at a granular level and on a dynamic basis, like I said, to say how much more or less valuable is the customer today than they were yesterday. So it starts there. And then it starts getting into this more uh, nuanced alignment of retention and development activities, that it's not just this one-size-fits-all campaign, um, but it's going to be doing different things with different kinds of customers and measuring, measuring, measuring all along the way to find out which activities make most sense. You know, there's a real dilemma about we have these high-value customers over here. So should they be the ones that we go after first? Um, Or do we kind of just leave them on cruise control because they're already high value and spend those touches on the lower value customers instead? That's a real tough challenge. And the answer is, well, it depends. And so that's why we need to measure all the time and find out which kinds of activities for which kinds of customers are value enhancing. And at which time should we just leave those high value customers alone? Because we don't want to annoy them. You know, they became great customers on their own without us annoying them, so it's not clear that we need to keep reminding them of how valuable they are to us. That actually might hurt their value. (laughs) So it's being really careful about the tactics that we use, running experiments, measuring after the fact, and then learning kind of on a meta level. What are the characteristics of the tactics that are value enhancing versus value defending for different kinds of customers?
1: I think that's an excellent point about running experiments and learning and being very careful about what activities you do. Um, Just a week or two ago, we had the brand marketing director from Winky Lux, which is one of these uh, fast retail companies. And she was talking about how they were getting ready to kill a product in the product set. But when they looked at who was actually buying it, they realized it was a high value customer favorite product. And that if they married it with other products in a specific way, they would be able to, and they did, um, take the people who were in the middle levels and help get them to be a little bit higher in retention, become a little bit more high value. So by analyzing not just product, but actual merchandising with the connection of the customer value, they were able to increase the overall value of the base, which is going exactly back to your point about testing and running experiments. They didn't know what answer they were going to get.
0: That is such a great example, Allison. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that podcast (laughs) myself because that idea of judging products on the basis of who buys them as opposed to how many units we ship out, that is just such a a wonderful illustration of what customer centricity is all about and, and how it contrasts very sharply with the usual product-focused views. Now let's go back to Black Friday, because a lot of those products that are moving most rapidly are the ones that are appealing to low-value low customers. Or Maybe I'm speculating a little bit about that, but but it stands to reason that the people who are just waiting outside the door and they're going to come in, You know, let's watch to see which products they're running after. And it's probably those kinds of products that are the, uh, that are magnets for the worst kinds of customers. Now, I'm not saying we should abandon all of those products, but we should keep in mind that just because something is a bestseller doesn't mean that it's enhancing the most ongoing and future value for us. And so we really need to figure out uh, uh, which products are most appealing and, and least appealing to our most valuable customers and kind of look at the portfolio of products in the same way that we look at the portfolio of customers.
1: Now, I'm going to take a guess here because I haven't been very close to Theta Equity Partners, but is that what you're trying to help people see in the uh, in, with Theta Equity Partners, helping them see how companies build value through the customer base as opposed to the product sales?
0: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So so what we were doing with Zodiac was much more micro. So how valuable is this customer and therefore how valuable it was that product or that campaign? At uh, Theta Equity Partners, we're operating at a much higher level. We're not doing any of that micro kind of stuff. Uh, instead, we're saying just how valuable is this overall set of customers? How much can we break it down for the cohort we just acquired versus the cohort we acquired last year? And and what's the linkage, I mean, here's the important part, between the overall amount of customer equity and the overall value of the firm. Let's tie customer valuation to market valuation and show companies, first of all, are the two lined up? And if they're not, why is that the case? Is it that shareholders are not seeing all the value residing in these customers? Or is it that they're seeing other sources that the customers are only so valuable, but they're kind of overvaluing the company because they're kind of seeing value that might not really be there, that can't be borne through the customers. So let's try to bring some rigor and discipline on the finance side through customer valuation, and then, then work backwards, then give the companies both the courage and the tools that on their own they can start to do some of the the more micro activities.
1: This always reminds me of what you used to say, which is that the CFO has to get on board with the CMO's customer-centric methodologies in order for it really to take flight. And it sounds like this is exactly anchored to that um, that idea.
0: Yes, yeah, indeed, that, that our clients are the CFOs or the the VPs of investor relations. And it's been really, really heartening to see uh, how many of them and, and how immediately they get this message. Uh, again, they don't necessarily care about all that marketing stuff. They just want to make sure that what they're saying to their external stakeholders is aligned with the true value of the firm, that as they go out there and, and think about, uh, say, a merger and acquisition activities, they want to make sure that they're doing it correctly. Uh, and then after they see that these models work in terms of corporate valuation, to be able to then have that partnership with the folks in marketing, again, that's not why they're doing it, but it's wonderful icing on the cake that it can create a more uh, productive and aligned conversation within the organization as well.
1: Pete, would you like us to link to the corporate valuation papers that you and Dan McCarthy did in the show notes or as part of this podcast?
0: Of course. Yeah, the, 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 that's the nice thing about it is that even though we have this commercial enterprise, state equity partners, and there's lots of information on that website as well. A lot of it begins with some academic work that Dan and I have done. So there's no kind of black box, secret sauce here. We've put a lot of these methods out there. We want people to use them. Goes right back to the mission that I kind of started uh, that 15, 20 years ago, that there's just really good practices to be done, uh, but, it, but it's hard to do them. They're, they're very unfamiliar. So it's been my job to put a lot of this stuff out there in the public domain, And ironically, even though I've commercialized some of it, the commercialization is partially just to legitimize it and just to say, you know, hey, look, you know, we can make money on this. You can, too. So You don't necessarily have to come to us. You can just read these papers and act uh, on them on your own. Uh, But if you find that too burdensome or if you want to work with the best in class, then, hey, we're we're happy to do it. But uh, so, so both academically and commercially, Uh, it's just worth knowing about this stuff and and at least exploring the possibilities.
1: Now, if you're not a CFO, of course, you could get the customer centricity playbook that is coming out. And you could also get a, a good idea of what kind of strategies to start to pull into your company through that playbook, right?
0: Indeed. And it's important to emphasize that we have different activities, models, text, uh, depending on where you are in the organization, uh, depending on what level you're at, depending on what, what functional area you're in. But it all does fit together. That's the beautiful thing about it, is that I can turn around from a corporate valuation exercise to some kind of you know Black Friday marketing tactical thing. And while it might seem like I'm talking about very different stuff, underneath the surface, it's all aligned and it's all about looking at and leveraging the lifetime value of, of the customer base. And, and that's what makes me really happy is that I don't have to offer an entirely different message to different people in the organization. I'm going to say the same thing slightly differently, uh, but, but it all comes back. And it's just really nice when you see that kind of consistency.
1: Exactly. Well, now, if people want to get in touch with you, Pete, how should they reach you?
0: Well, uh, easiest thing, best thing is just to Google my name, uh, or, or you can go to PeteFader.com. That's my kind of academic page, uh, or go to ThetaEquity.com, where you can see a lot of things we're doing with the valuation. Uh, but uh, but maybe the best first step would be to go to check out the Customer Centricity Playbook. It's coming out right now. Uh, it's, it's already been sparking a wonderful conversation from folks who have seen some advanced copies of it, and I just can't wait to see how that gospel spreads and how it can lead to uh, uh, other changes uh, that, that companies take on, to give them just a little bit more courage and knowledge to try things that they just wouldn't have been thinking about doing even five years ago.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, let me do a very quick summary here, and you can tell me if you want to add anything else along the way, but we started out talking about Black Friday, and the thing that you said in the very beginning that I I thought was very interesting and I haven't heard on this show before is this phrase about, we used to believe we could manage the customer relationship. This struck home with me because I just came back from a conference where everybody was talking about the next best action and the embedded assumption in the next best action wasn't about it being customer led it was about exactly what you said if you just put the right thing in the front of the customer then the customer will take it that that it's just like you're feeding somebody a series of treats in order to get them into a particular activity but what you said is that the behavior is really more random and there's only so much we can do and that we need to acknowledge that limitation by creating that relationship with customers, understanding their value, and thinking about more nuanced ways to go. And that's particularly what's wrong with Black Friday. Did I get that right?
0: That's a wonderful summary, Allison. It's probably better than the the, the previous uh, 45 (laughs) minutes. So (laughs) good job on that.
1: (laughs) And then we talked about what kind of impact can I get. You had said that are we playing offense, which is about creating more value in existing customers? Or are we playing defense, which is about holding on to the customer base? And Black Friday was really about holding the line and setting the defense. And And then you said, it's okay to have some discounts, like we don't need to completely do away with discounting altogether. But the sense that the companies could devote all that effort to higher-end customers. And, you know, how would you reward and treat your higher-value customers as opposed to just a free-for-all for people that you might never see again until next year?
0: That's right. And, and you know, one piece of the equation that we haven't touched on, Allison, is in customer acquisition. Uh, so far, we've been talking entirely just about the care and feeding of the existing customers. but and, and we don't have the time to get into it just now, but but it's real important to point out that when we're talking about playing offense, as you said, we're, we're creating and extracting more value out of the existing customers. But there's also that whole idea of going out there and finding new customers as well. Uh, that should be part of the holiday season is bringing in new customers. And unfortunately, a lot of the Black Friday activities, the new customers are bringing in aren't going to be very good ones. Exactly. So then we're going to be stuck with even more bad customers making a bad thing worse.
1: Exactly. I, I think that's maybe that's a topic for a future episode and, and such a good point. So then we talked about what to do next. And obviously you have to measure, you have to understand who is coming in, get your CLV calculations. Uh, and And then you actually called out some interesting avenues here that it's not just about the fact that I could look at it from the customer centricity playbook and the activities I could take there, but the interlocking of that with the theta equity side, which is a I could also look at how my company is valued and then everything underneath uh, connects. and I think that's something really beautiful that most companies don't see and is incredibly valuable. So thank you for calling that out in the uh, in the steps of things to do next. And Allison,
0: thanks for being just a great big platform megaphone for uh, (laughs) taking some of these ideas and and truly uh, making them accessible to a very broad audience.
1: Thank you, Pete. Well, as always, links to everything we discuss are at AmbitionData.com slash podcast. Pete, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: I really enjoyed, Allison, and I'm hoping to see just a little bit more, a little bit more rationality when it comes to uh, to Black Friday this year. Uh, Every year, we'll take a step in the right direction.
1: We'll have to wait and see. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. I've been chatting with Wharton professor Pete Fader about the new book he wrote with Wharton Interactive executive director Sarah Toms. It's called The Customer Centricity Playbook, Implement a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Value. Now, obviously, that's something that we believe deeply in on the show. And thanks to the nice folks at Wharton, we were able to secure a special discount for our podcast listeners. So if you go to bit.ly slash ambition data, which is bit BIT dot L-Y slash ambition data. A M B I T I O N D A T A, you will receive a 30% discount off the ebook retail price. And this is actually a Wharton Digital Press page that loads the discount where you can buy the book, which, by the way, is very good for customer centricity as well, since if you've ever sold a book, you know that you don't get any information from Amazon about who buys your stuff. So, anyways, that link again is bit.ly slash ambition data, which is bit.ly slash ambition data for a 30% discount off the ebook. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Alison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text ambition data one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.